Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. Today's conversation is between Reverend Lori Walkie, Yusef Camel, and myself. We talk about a number of issues, from religion to immigration to the criminal punishment system, and how all of these things tie back into the role of religion and a progressive framework to this institution. So I'm joined today by Yusef Camel, who is Foundation for Liberating Minds Director of Global Vision. Youssef Kamel is a senior from Egypt at the University of Oklahoma, studying international area studies and religious studies. Youssef is passionate about diversity, peace, and sustainability, and hopes to work with local NGOs to promote human rights across the globe. Youssef left Egypt in 2014 to pursue an education at United World College of the Atlantic before enrolling at OU. The UWC is a conglomerate of schools all around the world whose main goals are using education as a force for peace and a sustainable future. His go-to fun fact is that he lives next to the pyramids, which I can say is always the best fun fact in whatever rooms um, Yusef is in. Um, so welcome, Yusef. Thank you, Miles. Next, we have Reverend Lloyd Walkie. Um, Reverend Lloyd Walkie, J.D., is Associate Minister at Mayflower Congressional UCC Church, a graduate of Oklahoma City University School of Law, Phillips Theological Seminary, Oklahoma State University, and is currently working on her Doctor of Ministry at Emory University. She was once described as a loose cannon. Loy is the co-founder of JL Creative, a collaboration which produces progressive Christian curriculum for children and is used in congregations in over 18 states, England, Canada, and Australia. Her work includes fighting against predatory lending and advocating for equality, restorative justice, and accessible health care. She is married to Colin Walkie, an attorney and state representative for House District 87, and together the quote-unquote Rev and the Rep try to make as much trouble in the name of Jesus and justice as they can. So welcome, Reverend Walkie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, how are you? I am good. So good to be here. Just the first question to kind of get us started off today, um, if you would, beyond your bio, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you got into sort of this line of work. Sure. I'm a born and raised Oklahoman, mm -hmm. uh, actually here in Norman, Oklahoma, awesome. graduate from more public schools, but uh, been here my whole life. My family is here and my husband's family is here. Um, and we believe the work is here. Mm. I was raised with that Oklahoma standard in mind and in a very religious home. Mm. But that did not mean that Jesus and justice were related. Mm. That would uh, my, my realization and my, my connection there would come later, mm. primarily in seminary. And um, while in seminary, there was a big movement here for faith-based organizing. And uh, I was fortunate to, to get in on the ground level to really learn um, the importance of storytelling and listening to each other so that we can, we can know each other's greatest joys, but also what keeps each other up at night. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that, knowing that 
that we have much more in common than we don't mm. and that we can work together to work on those things that bring joy, but also work on those things that keep each other up at night. So what is the work? You, you said that the work is here in Oklahoma. What does that mean? For uh, you? Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> a big one. Um, you know, I think, you know, right now we there's this big push for us to be a top 10 state. And that mm. is because we are decidedly not, not yeah. a top 10 state. Yeah. Uh, and we see that in just a range of things from education to incarceration to those who are experiencing hunger and homelessness. Mm. Oklahoma has a lot to work on. And there's a, you know, there are people around the country who say, why do you, why do y'all stay in Oklahoma? But that is, it's literally because the work is here. And also because the hope is here. There are people all over who are pulling in the same direction, trying to just holding each other's hands and saying, we're not going to leave anybody out. So let's move forward. So there's a lot of work to be done. Here in the state of Oklahoma, for sure. But I think, yeah, that question is often asked, right, as a progressive person or as a progressive uh, group or organization, right? Like, why do you do it here, right? Um, And I think that answer is perfect, the fact that, you know, you could move to a more, quote-unquote, progressive or blue state or what have you. But, you know, if everyone leaves Oklahoma, then it's just going to stay the same. That's right? right. So what about religion specifically got you to think that this is the right avenue? I mean... Your husband, for example, is a representative, and he's doing it through the avenue of politics, the much, the easier uh, road, mm-hmm. uh, if, if, if I may. And I know politics is not easy, but out of both of those, I'm, sure. I'm guessing one of you gets a little bit more leeway in what he does. Well, I would say that part of our hope is that we inspire people to do the work on both sides of the desk. So he's on he's on the side of the desk where the chair is. And we wanted to run so that we could have someone on that that particular side of the desk who was receptive to progressive ideas, uh, progressive policies, progressive laws. And that is a vital part of moving Oklahoma forward, but the work on the other side of the desk, our side, the side where the chair is not, um, that is, he cannot do his work without us and we cannot do our work without him or the many other legislators on that side of the desk. But if we don't show up, then um, he cannot do what he needs to do. And there are, as we all know, you can change the law, but you got to change hearts. Mm -hmm. And that's where my work as pastor comes in. I work on changing not just laws and supporting policies and and culture that isn't racist, sexist, xenophobic, but I am also working on making sure that our everyday interactions are led by love. Mm -hmm. And that's what changes hearts and what ultimately changes things in Oklahoma. I was actually watching one of your sermons <laughs> the other day, and I um, I went onto the Mayweb Flower website, and I was like, okay, I'm going to just watch the latest sermon. I was going to like, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to find stuff about social justice and acceptance on the first sermon that I watched. But <laughs> no, there it was. And I think it was To Whom We Belong uh, on the letter mm-hmm. poll. That was January 26th, if I'm not wrong. And then I looked at another one, and there it was. <laughs> and I just have to say, you know, <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> um what does progressive religion mean to you? I mean, how does that, how do those two kind of line up? Sure. When we talk about um, progressive, the word progressive in church or as applied to theology, for me, it means that we are committed to conserving 
the prophetic tradition Mm -hmm. by questioning authority and the status quo. Mm -hmm. It means that we recognize um, the depth and breadth of humanity Mm -hmm. and that all of us as children of God Mm -hmm. are worthy of dignity and respect Mm -hmm. and that we we are ever looking for the justice piece um, and willing to step in and change things and involve ourselves in politics. And people get really fidgety about politics and church. And I think it's important to clarify, politics comes from the Greek word polis, meaning of the city. And that Politics then is everything that affects the city and the shaping of the city, laws and policies. And I think that the church has something to say about that, specifically connected to the the work and ministry of Jesus and and how he was political. Mm -hmm. But the church has something to say about the shaping of the city, whether how our laws are. And and I said this before, whether or not they are hierarchical, sexist, racist, xenophobic, Mm -hmm. and how we want our city to be shaped. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it is vital that the church is involved in politics. Mm -hmm. This, however, is different than the church being partisan. Mm -hmm. And the church cannot be partisan. And I would define partisanship as behavior or activities that harass an enemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is not what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. Jesus would not identify as a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or as a member of the Green Party. (laughs) But there is a politics to the gospel, Mm -hmm. and that is to set the captives free, to restore sight to the blind, um, to declare the year of the Lord's favor for everybody, Mm -hmm. not just the 1%. And so, uh, to me, that's our, our main work, mm-hmm. is to shape the city in a way that reflects the kingdom of God. So, would that, would that kind of imply that the Bible is, um, if the Bible is, as you say, is, you know, just as progressive, then how, I think that's a question that pops into a lot of people's minds, because, yeah. you know, again, um, the religious right is <laughs> such a powerful force. Sure. <laughs> um how is it possible that one text is, uh, you know, it bends over backwards in every way <laughs> that you want? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's the the Bible is uh, can be very powerful mm-hmm. and also can be very harmful, mm-hmm. but it also can be extraordinarily life giving. And so uh, the the key to interpreting scripture is to um, interpret scripture through the lens of love not the opposite. Mm-hmm. So we always, that's our guide. Love is our guide. And I encourage people to look at the arc of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So for instance, the Bible has been used to uh, justify slavery. And in fact, the New Testament never, it never condemns slavery. Mm-hmm. It, it closes without without saying this is wrong and bad and you should get do away with slavery. Mm-hmm. But we know ultimately that the Bible actually does condemn slavery Mm -hmm. because of the arc of the narrative. It's always moving towards freedom. The Mm -hmm. stories of of exodus and liberation are overwhelming. And so we can apply that to all sorts of developed doctrine um, to combat homophobia, um, misogyny, Mm -hmm. xenophobia. Over and over again, we're really seeing stories of relationships that are made right when we apply justice and loving kindness 
and those principles of peace that we find over and over again in the story. I think especially, you know, with the misogyny bit in the Christian church, I wonder if you could talk, you know, a bit about your experience, right, as a woman um, in the pulpit and also the ways that oppression often shows up in the church, right, and in religion and the ways that religious leaders often use the word of God, right, for mm-hmm. to oppress, right, or to keep per- certain people subservient or um, in a certain quote-unquote role, right, and how we reinforce gender roles and things of that nature into the church. Sure. I was raised in a tradition that does not ordain women and uh, does not recognize their authority or any call from God on their lives. And that's where I learned sexism first is the church, mm. which is uh, hard but true. Mm. And um, it was a series of experiences that I had in college for seeing some uh, attending a church where they ordained female deacons mm. that I began to think, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe God is speaking mm. differently than just in the church that I was raised mm. and would eventually discover and um, embrace theology that widened the circle of inclusion instead of having it a, a closed circuit, so to speak. Mm. And the church, ultimately, I, I, my hope for the church is that we are a model to the world and not a reflection of it. Mm. And so often we talk about the, the, the glass ceiling for women mm. as far as CEOs and in the business world and even in academia. And the stained glass ceiling in the church is also real. Mm. And that is deeply, deeply grieves me because, again, the church should be a model for the world, not a reflection of its of its worst impulses. And so as a female clergy person in Oklahoma, I'm in the minority. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I very often yeah. wear my clergy collar in public spaces or when I am serving as a public theologian mm-hmm. simply because you can see you can be what you can see. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a woman in a robe and stole preaching behind a pulpit until I was 24. Mm-hmm. But when I did see that woman, I thought, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And so it is my hope that there are uh, women and girls out there who are perhaps in a tradition that doesn't recognize their full humanity, mm-hmm. but they'll see an, a woman in a clergy collar and think, oh, Huh, what's what's going on there? Um, and be empowered to either ask more questions or to go ahead and embrace that little that that voice that they very likely have already heard in their head saying, "You're enough, and you have work to do." So it can be a little rough sometimes. People range from the curious of, "Oh, I didn't know women could be pastors. Are you a unicorn?" Um, <laughs> to more aggressive folks. Where just last week, a man thought it very important to come up to me in Starbucks and aggressively tell me how I was not fit to be a pastor because I am a woman. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him. He just felt compelled to share his opinion with me. Um, those are those moments are a little scarier um, because you just don't know really where they're coming from. Um, and, you know, you, you try to do your best to make sure the situation stays, mm-hmm. stays calm, but also to stand, stand up, not just for your own self, but for all the girls that may be coming behind me. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about sort of the role of religion and like socialization processes, right? And Yusuf, you can jump in this as well. And the ways that 
for a lot of kids, well, you know, we're obviously here in the Bible Belt, right? Religion is a really big source of knowledge um, for them. And again, you know, on the same sort of trail of the ways that it can be a force, right, for love, um, but can also be a force to reinforce these same systems, right, that we're trying to dismantle. Mm-hmm. So what are the ways both that religion can be used sort of for wrong or for evil or for hate, um, but also how can religion be used or did this liberation theology be used to raise up kids in a sort of consciousness where they lead with that love? One of the, I think, the most important things about religion is that it can provide some roots and some foundation that remain there no matter what. And when people get tired or when people of privilege can opt to step out or step away, This is when I think religion can be really helpful. And I'm really talking to white Christians at this point because we are the most able to step away when things get hard or conversations get difficult or messy or we're just tired. Our call to share the good news of God's love and to work for a more peaceful and just world that reflects God's kingdom this is how religion says, na, 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 you can't, don't, don't turn on Netflix. Like you got to stay engaged um, because you, you have some commitments. And that's when I think faith can be most helpful in justice work. I also think that stories from scripture are some of the most inspiring Uh, You know, we've got Jesus who is confronted by a woman who is asking for health care for her child. He dismisses her and she says, oh, no, oh, no, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And Jesus is sort of taken aback and uh, has to reconsider how big he thinks God is. And it turns out God is big enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's just like a beautiful example of reassessing what we think we know Mm -hmm. um, and what we put, how we put religion or God or faith in a box. If even Jesus can reassess, I mean, surely we can too. (laughs) Um, But then just this persistence, uh, you know, even in just the story of Jesus, he certainly had an idea that he was going to end up on the cross. The cross is a political death. It was a public service announcement. If you push back too hard against the status quo, you will end up on this cross. Um, And we will strip you of all dignity that we can. And we'll leave your body there to be picked apart by wild animals. And uh, Jesus knew that was likely his fate if he kept uh, offering forgiveness, if he kept saying, oh, you're included. You're included. You're included. You're included. There's nobody who is excluded. Um, and God does not want uh, perfunctory uh, rituals. God wants relationship and God um, wants relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. And he kept pushing that. And he did, in fact, end up on that cross. And that kind of commitment, that kind of dedication to making the world um, more reflective of the kingdom of God is our call. And that's our that's our highest uh, model, our, our best example of commitment and a, a highest expression of love. Mm-hmm. And so these are the stories that gird us, that that give us courage and strength when otherwise we lose our way. Mm-hmm. 
So that's why I believe that the church has a, a very important role, especially in this particular moment in history. Listening to you, I'm very tempted to forget about everything <laughs> bad happening within the world and kind of just focus on trying to use religion for a source of justice. How do you think that a message so beautiful that is so you know, it's pushing for social justice, it's pushing for people to actually, you know, get engaged, work towards making this a better place, wherever this is. Mm -hmm. How do you think that something like this can get tangled up or convoluted and, and just turned into something yeah. that it's not? <laughs> well, uh, I tell you, I think that a lot of the stories in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, they are about combating idols. Mm -hmm. Letting God be God, not substituting anything else for God, because we do that so easily. Mm -hmm. um, but power is so seductive. Mm -hmm. And when people get power, then they tend to want to fight everybody else off or just make sure they have the most power. And that's really, I think, sadly, what Christianity has become. Christianity started as a resistance movement, but then over time it was adopted by the empire and used to control people. And Walter Brueggemann wants to find justice as sorting out power and returning it to people. And, and I think power can be, that word can be, you can substitute freedom, mm -hmm. rights, but we don't give anybody anything. We return things to them, mm -hmm. right? Enslaved people mm -hmm. were not given their freedom. It was returned to them. Uh, the right to vote for people of color and for women, it was not given to mm -hmm. them. It was returned to them um, because it had been taken wrongly. And things get twisted uh, because we let something else become God to us. Mm -hmm. Um, instead of letting God be God. So touching on the role of whiteness in religion, right? And so this, this both the social construct, but an incredibly powerful force um, in today's society and over multiple centuries. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the ways that, because, you know, whiteness often tells people who benefit, right, from that system mm -hmm. um, to back away, right, or to mm -hmm. look at their privilege, right, and ignore it, right, or to never acknowledge that privilege. So I wonder if you can talk about you know, ways that you combat sort of those pushes or those notions of ignoring the work or ignoring the call when it's not suitable or it's not convenient for you? So I think a major difference between the white church and the black church is that the white church really doesn't think we need Jesus. Mm -hmm. The black church has always known the need for Jesus, um, for liberation. But the white church, because we've had power, mm -hmm. we've sort of been like, oh, Jesus is super nice. <laughs> Jesus is a super nice guy. And we are going to be nice. Mm -hmm. Like, we're going to be just nice. Mm -hmm. That's our that's our call as Christians. <laughs> then, though, when you get into the text, Jesus is doing all of this work to dismantle hierarchy and privilege and assumptions. Mm -hmm. And this is why the white church needs, desperately needs Jesus and, you know, there's obviously an interpretation of needing saving from eternal damnation or the fires of hell. But I argue that we need saving from things that are much more real. Mm -hmm. We need saving from ego and selfishness and isolation. Mm -hmm. 
And that is what the white church desperately needs. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the most important things that's facing white Christians is this obsession, particularly among liberals and progressives, who I count myself among, Mm -hmm. but this idea that we are not racist. We don't want to be called racist. Oh, hand-wringing and pearl-clutching over being the idea that we're racist. But we are. And we have to move from worrying too much, so much, about not being called racist to being anti-racists. Mm-hmm. And that should be what the white church is facing full-on, anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. What are the ways that we are continuing to prop up white hierarchy? How are we actively dismantling that? Mm. How are we engaging voices of color, not just during Black History Month (laughs) or on Martin Luther King Sunday? Mm. Who who are we including in our spaces and who are we developing relationships with? Um, and so much justice work, everything is connected. But I mean, every, like immigration, our country is founded on, you know, racist immigration policies. And it goes back hundreds of years. I mean, mm-hmm. not just we are literally bringing people of color here and making them stay yeah. to saying, oh, no, depending on the color of your skin, mm-hmm. you know, the whiter you are, the more likely <laughs> you are to be able to come here. Mm-hmm. And And uh, we see that today even in, you know, what started as a Muslim ban Mm -hmm. to just last week Mm -hmm. uh, sort of doubling down. Essentially, if you are black, Mm -hmm. you cannot come to America. That's essentially the the policy that was revealed last Mm -hmm. week. Um, And it's not a new thing, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is not done in the cover of of night anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, We're just full on racist in the cold light of day. Uh, with this immigration policy. So what is the white church doing about just immigration or to make our immigration system just? You know, I think it's fascinating, right? The the sort of differentiating between the word of God, right? And the the true practices of God, which is up for interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. And up for debate and what have you, but also the very real sort of human nature of life, right? And, and, And growing up and maturing, Um, And seeing all of these harms, right, that are Mm -hmm. are now again today out in the open, right, Um, and trying to make sense of all of these things in our lives. And often people with privilege see those things and they want to feel good, right? They want to feel nice, right? And so they excuse um, their own role in those systems by propagating those same systems Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, making them seem right in their minds, right, so that they don't have to deal with and so that they can ignore it. And to go the other way, right, to actually confront those systems or confront one's role in those systems, right, and uh, upholding those systems is really hard, right, and it's really difficult. And I think the majority of the time, particularly for white people, right, they turn the other way Mm -hmm. because it's just, it's easier, right? It's easier to go about life ignoring those things, right? Because oftentimes you don't have to live with it and you don't have to deal with it. So I think like a really big question is how do we get people of privilege, people with privilege, to make the hard decision, to make the hard choice, to confront those things and to like deeply reflect on the ways that they, both the ways that they benefit from those systems, but also the ways that they themselves perpetuate the harms of those systems. And I don't really have an answer for that. I think, you know, for different people, it's different, right? Like what awakens them to realize these things and then have the want to, to, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I don't think I know exactly how. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it is. It's complicated and it's it's different for lots of people. It is also, you know, it's it's head knowledge. It's, it's heart knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe that it does come down to relationships. Mm-hmm. Who are we breaking bread with regularly? I think we're in a really interesting time. In Oklahoma, you know, a lot of people right now are have just watched Just Mercy. And I think what's really, really important right now is that we connect, really have to keep the focus on the policies and laws that are locking up more people of color than anybody else. And the church has a pretty important, I think, important voice in saying we need to keep race centered in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Like it's not simply like this. We have a criminal justice problem. Mm -hmm. The system is working as intended. um, And people of color have been telling us this for a long time. Like Mm -hmm. the system is working just fine. It is designed to to lock up people of color. um, And it is doing just that. So it's not just we need to revise our criminal justice system because it'll save taxpayer money. We need to overhaul the criminal justice system because it is racist at its core. Mm. We actually need to figure out how to implement restorative justice, but it starts with race. And, you know, the criminal punishment system is, you know, a really big one, obviously, especially here in the state of Oklahoma, right? We incarcerate the most people in general, women and men, right, in the entire world per capita. And restorative justice is obviously a, um, an abolitionist framework, right? One that tries to imagine a world sand prisons and sand police and prosecutors, right? Um, in a world where our communities, when harm occurs, right? Because we know that harm is inevitable as human beings, right? How can our communities see that harm and address it and hold the harmers accountable and have the harmers hold themselves accountable and also center the victim, right, or the mm-hmm. survivor of that harm or that violence and allow them to heal and, and, and get the solutions or what have you that they need to, you know, become whole again. So I wonder, especially in a state like Oklahoma that just recently freed hundreds or thousands mm-hmm. of formerly incarcerated people, all nonviolent drug offenders, right, sort of, you know, the biggest push of that nature and that we've seen in the state and I think, you know, in the nation as well. Um, but this issue of criminal punishment and the ways that we incarcerate so many people, right, and spend so much money on these institutions of violence and harm that mm-hmm. are prisons, sort of this call for restorative justice. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about, like, what that looks like for you, right, as a theologian, um, and, but then also sort of the ways that restorative justice is in itself um, a radical dream, right, to, to, to reimagine this, the ways that we look at punishment and accountability in this country? Yeah, I think that the idea behind restorative justice is that no one is beyond mercy. No one is beyond redemption, which are themes of the gospel. And, you know, we see examples in the text where a woman is brought to Jesus with accusations and Jesus stops the procedure Mm. the woman was going to be put to death Mm. and he says this is not this is i will not participate in this system Mm. and that's the kind of radical like 
we have to have a full stop here mm-hmm. and reassess everything that we're doing. No one will argue that it's broken, that we are, as you already said, incarcerating more people. It, I mean, we are killing ourselves. We are killing people who are in jail for, I, I mean, just being for being in jail. Mm-hmm. They're dying while they're in, in prison cells. Mm-hmm. So I think to say that we are committed to restorative justice is to say we are committed to the idea that no one is throwaway. There's not a throwaway person. There isn't anyone who we say, yeah, you can kill them in my name. Mm-hmm. And that's what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. The government is killing people in our name, which is for Christians should be like the worst mm-hmm. in that we claim to follow a man who was put to death by mm-hmm. the state. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what restorative justice means to me, but it doesn't it is not limited to how we incarcerate folks. We released thousands of folks, mm-hmm. which was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, by And we did that because we reassessed what our definitions of um, and understandings of what we should put people away for. But, okay, so now what? Now what for them? Yeah. Do we have economic justice in place to help them rebuild their lives? Mm-hmm. Or are the fines and fees that they incurred in jail going to just suck them right back into a jail cell? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very possible. Mm-hmm. So what are the ways that we are making sure that people can earn a living wage? They can put food on the table and clothe their kids, right? Like this is justice. Mm-hmm. The answer to homelessness is homes, mm-hmm. not shelter. Yeah. The answer to hunger is a living wage, not free school lunches. Yeah. That's how it all works. And it's not just about our laws and our policies, but really how we see each other. When you are walking down the street, the person that you pass, are you giving them the benefit of the doubt? Mm-hmm. And are we absolutely committed to this idea of seeing the whole person and believing that no matter what somebody has done, that we will remain committed to our gospel values mm-hmm. of mercy and justice and liberation and peace. Mm-hmm. And this idea that we can ultimately, if death happens, there is resurrection. Mm-hmm. And sometimes entire systems have to die mm-hmm. so that new life can happen. And all right. That's going to take a little faith. Yeah. If we're certain that it was all that it's all going to come out in the end, then that's not faith. That's mm-hmm. just certainty. Mm-hmm. But this is why the work is hard. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like on the other side, but our job is to keep pushing mm-hmm. to get to morning. One of the main problems that we face in general is that we have a um, more of a desire for instant gratification instead of long-term change. How do we fix that? How do we how do we get past that point of, oh, I'm donating $5 to whatever charity that I want, and that's mm-hmm. good enough for the next five years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is definitely, I think that, I think what you're talking about, Yusuf, is the difference between charity and justice. Mm-hmm. And we need both. Right. We definitely need both. Mm-hmm. Charity, though, addresses symptoms, mm-hmm. while justice addresses the root, mm-hmm. um, the cause. And we need both. Mm-hmm. And I would also say, again, to get back to relationship, charity is often, it is like just sort of a one-way giving, mm-hmm. whereas justice is relationship, is is saying all of us are worthy of dignity and mm-hmm. respect and an abundant life. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so justice is two-way giving. Mm -hmm. It is giving and receiving where charity is, well, I'm going to sprinkle my niceness yeah. on you. <laughs> and then that's, it's, it's important, but it's not mm -hmm. ultimately the answer. Right. You know, I encourage people to sort of evaluate mm -hmm. how they're balancing those things. Mm -hmm. And again, charity and justice, we need them both. We need money to, to run food pantries and all of those mm -hmm. things. But again, we also got to be working for a living wage. Mm -hmm. So just to be mindful mm -hmm. of how we're balancing those in our lives, I think, is, is a, a good place to start. Mm -hmm. So are, are we talking more about charity? Or are we talking about mutual aid, solidarity, and all of that? Because I think part of a little part of the problem, I believe, is the idea of maybe moral or cultural superiority that comes with religion, maybe, and so on. And it's, you know, it's not particular to any specific thing, but I think it's it's a large part of um, doing this work because, um, you know, I'm better. <laughs> I'm better, you know, yeah. holier than thou kind of attitude. So that barrier to me is always, I kind of just see it like for church back home, for example. Mm -hmm. um, when I go, there are a lot of people who are advocating for, for service. And I come from an uh, Orthodox background. Mm -hmm. And so the priest comes up and is talking about how we should go and help those people because that's what we uh, that's what we do. And we're, we're better than all of those other people. And that's what we need to do for ourselves, not for those people. Mm. How do you deal with that in your congregation? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, that goes back to, um, you know, letting God be God mm -hmm. and not deciding that we are God mm -hmm. and we're going to help all these little people underneath us, mm -hmm. you know. Yesterday, I preached on uh, Micah chapter, chapter 6, and a lot of people know Micah chapter 6, verse 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your mm -hmm. God. And that last piece, the humility piece, mm -hmm. um, that is about keeping the main thing the main thing, Absolutely. letting God be God. Humility is about mindfulness, not spilling your ego all mm -hmm. over everybody in the immediate vicinity. Mm -hmm. It is attentiveness, mm -hmm. thoughtfulness, mm -hmm. again, awareness that you are not the center of the universe. And I, I think that that's, that's part mm -hmm. of, you know, when, when we do charity, mm -hmm. again, it's great, but it's not the only thing. Right. So I have two more questions for you. If you could sort of uh, shift gears, still in this realm of, of justice work. So I know your congregation is an open and affirming church. So I wonder if you could just talk about like what is open and affirming. Um, and then also, um, I think a major player in the oppression of the LGBTQ plus community, right, has been mm -hmm. uh, the religious mm -hmm. right, right, and Christianity especially has been sort of this source of uh, hate and, you know, oppression for the queer and trans community. So I wonder if you can talk about what that open and affirming is sure. and, and sort of like the importance of it. Open and affirming is United Church of Christ lingo, church lingo, for saying that we believe God not only loves the rainbow, but God made the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. um, and that queer folk are fearfully and wonderfully made mm -hmm. as is. Uh, so that's what open and affirming mm. means. And the church has been a tool for oppression for the LGBTQ community um, for a long time. And it has been in very obvious ways in just actually condemning human sexuality. 
uh, because that's what it is. It's just condemning human sexuality Mm. to more, I think, in ways that can be more insidious, where a church says that all are welcome. But what they mean is all are welcome as long as you aren't really your full self. Mm. So we won't let queer folk teach Sunday school or be in leadership positions or Mm. preach or be deacons. And they don't lead with that. Mm. They kind of just let people find out as they try to become more involved and active in their congregation. And that really grieves me. But we also know that this, that both the more obvious and and sort of more um, under the table uh, discrimination against queer folk, it is profoundly damaging. Um, This is why our LGBTQ teens are at higher risk Mm -hmm. of self-harm, and self self hatred, yeah. um, and so it is so important right now for churches and congregations and church folk who are affirming to say that loudly yeah. over and over again, and and to dedicate their space to inviting queer youth groups mm-hmm. um, or support groups into their space. I think that's one of the most important ways congregations can support the queer community. But also um, to be very clear that it's a matter of faith. To discriminate against queer folk is to say that they are not equal in the eyes of God. And that is, it's against my religion to do that. And so right now we've got some really, there's a couple of things in the state legislature. This is the first day of the Oklahoma State Legislature. And um, there is a profoundly homophobic a bill in the Senate that we need to keep our eye on and that people need to call and, and say, this is against my religion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a great bill on the House side that actually effectively bans so-called conversion therapy. Um, we know how dam- we, we have all the numbers, we have all the statistics on how um, harmful uh, so-called conversion therapy is, and this would effectively ban it, this House bill. And so we need to, that's a, a way we can lead in sort of a positive way. And again, just get the message out, especially to our queer kids, Mm -hmm. that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and they are to be celebrated. And we want them not just to to survive. Mm -hmm. We want them to thrive. Mm -hmm. So that's the some really important church work that needs to be happening right now. How much do you think of that work that needs to be done? Is it equal parts contextualizing, in fact, correction and faith? Because, I mean, there are a lot of things that go about that may not be necessarily factually true. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're talking about homosexuality, it, it brings me back to some religious studies classes where it's, you know, it's not actually the Bible that says that. It's Augustine of Hippo who goes ahead yeah. and is like, <laughs> just kind of uh, is a little bit upset <laughs> about a bunch of things. How much of the work that we all need to do needs to be fact-setting and how much of it is just advocating for faith in other people as much as we believe in God? <laughs> I mean, I think you said it already. It's it's sort it's it's both and it's not either or. And these kinds of conversations need to be happening at dinner tables and with our close friends and family. Mm-hmm. With our close friends and family. Mm-hmm. And some of it is like, hey, I know you to quote Jesus, mm-hmm. you have heard it said. <laughs> But I say to you, you know, that it's a, again, just another model mm-hmm. um, where Jesus says, you've heard this religious teaching, mm-hmm. but I want you to think about this in a different way mm-hmm. because I think that God thinks about it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we all, we, you know, we have embedded theology and we've been taught certain things, we are also called to examine 
examine that embedded theology, examine things that have been handed to us. Because again, if Jesus can rethink something, we sure can too. And all the more reason to. And lastly, Reverend Walk, if you could, what is your radical dream for religion, for justice work, for the state of Oklahoma, the country, the world? Sort of what does that look like for you? I think it goes back to relationships and this uh, a dogged commitment for us to break bread with people that we are not related to, that don't look like us, that don't believe like us to share our stories with one another, that we might know what each other's greatest joy is, that we know what keeps each other up at night so that we can show up for each other better. And that solves all of the things that we are worried about and working on, that we can move towards a more whole world um, because it seems that we keep trying to limit who is in And, man, we just need to draw that circle wide and things will be made right. Ultimately, that is that's what I profess as as a Christian and as a pastor, um, that ultimately things will be made right. Mm -hmm. But that begins that just begins with a conversation. Well, thank you so much, Reverend Walkie Youssef, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Wish we had more time can hopefully bring you back for more conversations, so many more topics to, to get into and talk about and to dive deeper in. But again, just really appreciate you coming out today. So glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms, or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma, for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.